well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am glad you joined us on the program today. We're going to be talking with Mr. Larry Keene. He is the Senior Vice President and General Counsel with the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Uh, in just a moment, we've got a couple of things to talk with Larry about. So Friday actually was a, uh, a big day for the Biden administration and their anti-gun moves. First, we did see the close of the public comment period for the first of two proposed rules by the ATF and the Justice Department. This particular proposed rule dealing with redefining such terms as frame, receiver, firearm, uh, even readily in the Gun Control Act. Uh, and this would be uh, bad news for gun owners in a, a lot of regards. The uh, the, the specific uh, uh, attempt here by the Biden administration is to go after, quote-unquote, ghost guns. Home-built, unserialized firearms, which have been legal to do. You've been, it's been legal to build your own firearm since before this country was a country. But uh, the Biden administration wants to put a stop to it and uh, believes that it can do so by enacting this proposed rule. So we're going to get an update from Larry Keene, now that the public comment period is closed, what are the next steps for the Biden administration here? Also on Friday, the State Department announcing new sanctions against several individuals in Russia, as well as several businesses in Russia. And why this is important uh, is because this will impact, I think this is actually going to, I'm very curious to see what Larry Keene has to say, but I think this is going to actually impact American gun owners far more than it's going to hurt any Russian business interest, because one of the things that the State Department is doing, as it says, after September the 7th, no new permits will be issued for importing either firearms or ammunition from Russia into the United States. Now, I know that this was uh, reported uh, in some quarters as uh, a ban on all Russian uh, ammunition, starting right away. That's not the case. Uh, these existing permits that are already in place, will remain in effect for the lifetime of those permits. But you're going to see, uh, it sounds like, again, a, a, a freeze on the issuing of any new permits. And then as these existing permits expire, uh, the Biden administration is not going to renew them. So we could see a, a gradual reduction. And maybe, you know, again, it depends on how gradual we're talking about here. But we could see a, a gradual reduction in the amount of ammunition uh, imported from Russia into the United States, which accounts for roughly 30% or so of the U.S. ammunition market. So that's not nothing. Uh, but we're going to get the nitty-gritty details from Larry Keene from the National Shooting Sports Foundation because he has been studying this issue all weekend long, trying to figure out what it means for the industry. Uh, probably not spending too much time thinking about what it means for Russia. But again, I, I suspect that Russia is going to find buyers for this ammunition. If it's not imported in the United States, I mean, I can think of a uh, newly formed government in Afghanistan that might be interested in acquiring some uh, Russian ammunition, right? And Russia is certainly trying to increase its footprint in Central Asia. So, again, I don't think Russia is going to be too bothered uh, by this particular sanction. I think this is more of a, uh, a backdoor jab at American gunners. But let's find out what Larry Keene has to say from the National Shooting Sports Foundation Senior Counsel and uh, Executive Vice President, excuse me, a Senior Vice President and a General Counsel for the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Take a look and a listen. Larry, thank you so much for coming to the program, sir. It's good talking with you today. 
Always a pleasure to spend time with you. <laughs> no. Always something going on. Thanks to the Biden administration for always giving us something to talk about. Uh, let's get started, if we can, um, talking about these new sanctions that were imposed on Friday against uh, supposedly against Russia. But I, I, I said at the beginning of the program, I have a feeling that American gun owners are going to feel the pinch uh, more than uh, Russian ammunition makers at this point. So uh, it, it, tell me, what exactly did the administration do? Because I know that there's been a lot of uh, concern and, you know, a lot of folks seeing the breaking news and, and maybe jumping to conclusions. What is the Biden administration doing when it comes to the importation now of Russian firearms and ammunition? So on uh, Friday afternoon, the State Department announced that it was imposing, uh, along with the United Kingdom, it was a joint statement, imposing additional sanctions on uh, Russia as uh, a consequence of their involvement in the attempted assassination of a uh, Russian dissident uh, political leader. Um, one year ago on Friday, there had previously been sanctions imposed, so these were additional sanctions. There were some rumors uh, flying around the industry based on some comments made during our import-export conference uh, earlier in the month. And so, but nothing concrete, and we couldn't run it to ground. But on Friday, they announced that um, beginning September 7th, when the sanctions are published in the Federal Register, they will no longer uh, issue Form 6s, the ATF Form 6, to allow the importation of Russian-made firearms and ammunition into the United States at least for one year. They will revisit the sanctions at the end of one year and whether they will continue or not. Um, so, uh, you know, so the rumor was true. Um, and we've had some discussions already with ATF. And so approved Form 6s, which is the paperwork that ATF does to allow you to import uh, permanently import firearms and ammunition, they have told me that they will continue to honor approved Form 6s, uh, and they will continue to process applications for new Form 6s through till the publication on of the rule or the sanctions on September 7. So a number of companies that import Russian ammunition um, have already secured quite a number of Form 6s that have already been approved, and the Form 6 is valid for two years. So, um, you know, we're also trying to get confirmation that any shipments that arrive uh, in the U.S. port after September 7th, but based on an approved Form 6, will be allowed to you know, be imported into the United States. We believe that will be the case. So this, you know, will not really have an impact directly on supply um, for probably two years because a lot of product has been authorized to come in. And if they take the sanctions down after one year, it probably doesn't have very much of an impact. Mm -hmm. but if, you know, after two years, there will be some impact on the availability of this ammunition to come into the United States. It is, uh, you know, our estimation is about 4% of the overall ammunition market, 
but it's a large percentage of the steel case. Um, so probably 40%, but you know, that's a smaller segment of the overall market. So, um, there does not appear to be any direct nexus between the Russian manufacturers and this attempted assassination plot. This is, I think, economically driven as a way to try to uh, hurt the Russian regime economically. And so my understanding is that when they looked at what the U.S. imports from Russia, um, you know, this was a, a big number and could have an impact uh, over time to the Russian economy. And that, you know, is that, my understanding, is the motivation. Uh, obviously, there's will be some impact on the U.S. marketplace, particularly given the heightened demand that we have now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm glad to hear that there's not going to be an immediate impact uh, on uh, ammo availability. Um, again, it sort of sounds like it kind of reminds me of California's slow motion gun ban with their handgun roster, right? So we're not approving any new handguns for sale. Uh, older models get removed from the roster. And, and in turn, it, 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 in effect, it becomes a slow motion gun ban. Uh, it sounds like that's sort of what we're looking at here. This is a, a slow motion ban on the imports of Russian ammunition, starting with uh, no more, no, no, no new permits will be approved. Uh, and then as these existing permits expire, the potential then becomes that, uh, that they would not be renewed either if these sanctions remain in place. So it'll be about my, what I've been, I've talked to some folks in the industry that import Russian ammunition and they say they won't see an impact for two years because there's product coming in. There are four approved Form 6s. There will be additional Form 6s approved between now and September 7th, I'm sure. Uh, we've talked to ATF about that. You're going to be inundated with these applications and they expect that. So, um, so it will not have an, an immediate impact. And again, they can decide after a year to lift the sanctions. Um, and so there probably wouldn't be any impact. We'll have to see what happens in, in two years, whether they continue. You know, again, there's no direct nexus between these companies and Russia and the people involved in this you know, assassination plot that, that both the U.S. and the U.K. are, you know, sanctioning Russia over. And, you know, we'll see what happens in two years or in a year and then what the impact is in two years. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, uh, something else I want to ask you about, because this, I think, is going to impact gun owners uh, uh, in the short term, uh, certainly uh, much sooner than, than two years from now. Uh, and that is this proposed rule regarding redefining frames, receivers, firearms uh, under a federal law. Uh, even the term readily uh, would be redefined under this proposal uh, from the DOJ and the ATF. Public comments closed on Friday uh, in this public comment period. I, I got to say, Larry, I mean, I was I was pleased by the number of public comments that were submitted uh, according to the Federal Register on Friday, it looked like there were well over 200,000 comments that had been received. Um, I've taken a look at, you know, probably close to a thousand of these just randomly looking at comments. I've yet to run across one in support. I'm not saying they're not there, uh, but it seems to me that the vast majority of comments that DOJ and ATF received were in opposition to this proposal. I don't know that that actually means anything for the Biden administration. What, what is the next step here now that this public comment period is closed? In terms of implementing this this change, what does the what does DOJ and ATF have to do? So there were when we looked on Friday, Thursday, right before we filed our comments, 
I think he was up just under 300,000 comments. So what happens next process-wise is ATF has to go through every one of these comments uh, and then take them into consideration. And there are lots of very substantive comments, you know, by NSSF, by SAMI, the Sporting Arms and Ammunition Manufacturers Institute, by various manufacturers. Uh, Steve Hallbrook put in a very detailed letter. So they have to go through all of these arguments about how this is problematic. And it is unworkable and very problematic. It, it exceeds their lawful authority um, by requiring multiple serial numbers, either multiple serial numbers on one firearm or the same serial number multiple times on different parts. It's unclear. Uh, it's going to make it very difficult to get firearms repaired. They are uh, attempting to require uh, gunsmiths to have a license, and then any privately made firearm that comes into their possession, they're purporting to require those in, those licensees to put a serial number on the privately made firearm. There's no statutory authority for that at all in the Gun Control Act. So they'll have to go through all these many, many comments um, and take them into consideration and decide whether they need to modify or have to modify the proposed rule. Um, and with, you know, almost 300,000 comments, that's going to take them some time. Then they will have to do the internal review within the government of any modifications to the proposed rule, have to go through the review process within the government, and then eventually be approved and published as a final rule. That will, I mean, it's hard to estimate, but it, it will certainly take many months. We will not, I'm confident saying we won't see anything until at the earliest, deep into 2022, and, and potentially even later. It's just hard to know. I mean, I suspect, as is often the case, there will be many very short comments, um, you know, with two words and things like that. And so they have, but they have to go through those. They have to consider proposals that support the rule as well and anything that's put in there. And, you know, I'm sure the overwhelming majority are in opposition to the rule and criticizing the rule in various ways. Um, I did see gun control groups advocating uh, for their supporters to put in comments. How many did, you know, I don't know. And, and I, you know, I didn't see them offering substantive comments in support, you know, saying, you know, say this. Um, so they're probably a lot of very short comments by supporters. You know, this is really primarily driven by um, the so-called ghost gun issue, privately made firearms, 80% receivers. ATF says there were three decisions by federal district courts in criminal cases, which ATF in the, in the proposed rule itself says were erroneously decided. So in our mind, this is a vast uh, you know, overwhelming overreaction to three wrongly decided cases. And also, I think it's um, been driven by, you know, the gun control community advocating for banning privately made firearms, which are still permitted. Um, but if you ever take it into a dealer to, for a repair, um, it's got to get marked with a serial number. Uh, it creates a lot of problems for the manufacturers uh, there are marking issues that are unresolved. It doesn't tell you when something is a frame or receiver. 
uh, any more than it did before. It creates a lot of confusion because it changes the timeline for when you have to mark things, when you have to record things. It is completely unworkable. Uh, and, you know, Sammy and the NSSF have urged ATF to withdraw the rule in its entirety and to sit down with the industry and other stakeholders and have a constructive dialogue uh, because this is completely unworkable. Uh, and we think it clearly exceeds their statutory authority. It is completely vague and ambiguous. We don't know when something is a frame or receiver. Uh, you know, the, the factors they talk about for deciding when something is readily convertible are themselves completely subjective. So it's really very, very problematic. Uh, it's, in our opinion, completely unnecessary because uh, they could simply have modified the existing regulation to say, for example, that the lower on an AR-15 style is the frame of receiver. And that was what was at issue in the three cases. So, and it's not like ATF didn't know there were split receivers at the time the or Congress, for that member, when they adopted the Gun Control Act and said there would be a singular frame or receiver with a firearm. And readily convertible applies to the weapon, not to the frame or receiver. So until something is a frame or receiver, it isn't. And when it isn't, it isn't regulated. So they seem to be moving the line back or trying to move the line back and capture items that are not yet frames or receivers and treating them as if there are frames or receivers. And just, you know, last fall, in a lawsuit by Giffords against ATF, ATF outlined in great detail how they evaluate when something is considered a frame or receiver. And it looks like they just threw that out the window after telling a federal court, this is how we decide things. So in our comment letter, for example, we said, here's what you said to a federal judge in September, October, whenever it was, is this still valid or is this gone out the window? Um, so it's it's a very unfortunate situation. It's completely unworkable. It will have devastating impacts on the industry. It will increase costs. It will encourage people not to develop new products because they say, you know, AR-15 type rifles um, can continue to be made the same way. Prior classifications are still valid. It doesn't tell you when something's a new model or a new configuration, or a new design. So how do you know? Uh, you know, it's just a very ridiculous situation, very unfortunate. You know, and back in March, ATF requested a meeting with industry to talk about this. They didn't tell us the details of what they were planning. And we had one brief meeting, maybe lasted two hours. And then, and then you know, they put this out in, in April, and it's just, or May, early May, it's completely, completely unwelcome. Well, but again, I mean, this speaks to, I, I think, one of the problems um, with the nomination of David Chipman uh, to become permanent director of the ATF and, and, and really the, uh, the the attitude of the Biden administration that, that views the firearms industry itself uh, as an enemy, right, as, as, as sort of an, an antagonizing force uh, as opposed to, you know, an industry that is... I think asking for clear directives that is asking for uh, clear rules. And instead of getting those, those clear policies, what you got, as you just say, are these very ambiguous rules that, that make it impossible to know whether or not you're in compliance or not. We think it you know, violates the gun control act. We think it violates the administrative procedures act. We think it violates the unfunded mandate act. Um, 
you know, uh, it was clearly something that had been in the works uh, at ATF and DOJ for a very long time. This was not something 115 pages that was written between March and May. So this is something that's been ongoing for a long time, um, which is very frustrating. Uh, and again, only one very brief meeting with the industry, which we were very disappointed uh, that that was the case. Um, because we do want to comply. We do want to have clear rules so people know um, what they can and cannot do. Um, so, uh, and you know, to your point, the Biden administration doesn't treat us or look at us like we're the enemy. During the campaign trail, Joe Biden said out loud from the debate stage, right, the firearms manufacturers are the enemy, quote unquote, the enemy. So it's not really a surprise when we see this coming from the administration. And, you know, it makes you wonder about the Russian sanctions. Is this part of that, you know, looking at the industry as the enemy? Because it's not clear to me that it's going to have an impact. You know, those sanctions are going to have any impact on the Russian government. Yeah. Since there's all this product in the pipeline, it's going to come in unless you know, they change their mind about that, which they could do. Absolutely. Well, I mean, look, you know, the the the, the Russians, quite frankly, uh, can always go find another market. I mean, they're uh, certainly cozying up to the Taliban right now. So, you know, if need be, I'm sure that uh, there are some Central Asian countries that would be more than happy to buy uh, Russian ammunition, uh, which is, you know, again, I, I think I think this was and I described this at uh, Bearing Arms over the weekend. I described this as a middle finger to American gun owners, uh, at least as much uh, as a middle finger to the Russian government. Uh, and by the way, I, you know, personally speaking, I'm all in favor of uh, sanctioning the, uh, the the Russian government and, and Putin for uh, engaging in the assassination attempt against Navalny. But I, again, if, 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 as long as it's aimed in the right direction, uh, and I just don't know that this is actually aimed at Russia as much as it is aimed at uh, the American firearms industry and American gun owners. Uh, listen, Larry, I, I cannot thank you enough for the explanation, for, for giving us a little bit more detail about this. Um, so, you know, we still have that uh, public comment period open for the second of the two proposed rules here. This one regarding stabilizing braces uh, and, and pistols. Um, what is your advice to gun owners right now when it comes to that particular comment? Uh, public comment period, I believe, closes uh, early next month. Uh, in September, I forget the exact date. Um yeah, uh, I would encourage everybody to submit comments through the portal uh, about the rule. That, you know, within the Second Amendment community, that rule seems to have gotten a lot more attention. But I think is that, you know, what will have a bigger impact, certainly on the industry overall, and then you know, that just flows through to consumers, is the frame receiver rule. But I would encourage everybody to comment. I mean, it's another example where, you know, ATF has said these devices are permissible under the Gun Control Act. They gave uh, manufacturers termination letters, and then they're pulling the rug out from underneath those companies um, after saying it was okay. Um, so that's very problematic, right? Like, you, you know, they encourage people to submit for classifications. You get classifications, and then, you know, they can pull the rug out from underneath you and, and you know, kind of topple your business. Um because it's politically expedient. So yeah. very, it's very frustrating. As you've seen, a lot of comment letters from the Hill. Uh, I think, you know, I suspect, and most political pundits believe the House will flip in the midterm elections. Uh, probably going to be a wave election. 
uh, and 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 uh, the Republicans will have a pretty large majority, I suspect. Whether that happens in the Senate remains to be seen. But I think you'll probably see, um, you know, action in the House, at least in the next Congress. We got to wait till, you know, January 23 before that happens. But I suspect there'll be oversight hearings in the House looking into what exactly is going on here. Um, you know, and, and at this point, the Chipman nomination is still pending and to go to the floor whenever Chuck Schumer decides. Um, so I would encourage everybody, you know, not to forget about that and make sure they continue to either thank their senator if they've taken a public position in opposition. And if their senators have not, they need to continue uh, to reach out and contact them and make sure uh, they do not support the Chipman nomination. I mean, it's just so beyond the pale. Can you imagine the reaction from the left if President Biden had nominated Chris Cox or me or Wayne LaPierre to run the ATF? They'd be, you know, they would be shouting for the mountaintop. And honestly, Cam, with just cause, right? That would be absolutely. Look, I mean, I, I, I Larry, I down the fairway, you know, like. I used to joke during the Trump administration. Uh, I mean, I would, I, that was like a running gag on Twitter. I'd say, all right, I'm ready for the president to nominate me to head up the ATF. Um, because the idea itself was so ludicrous. And yet that's exactly what we've seen now from the Biden administration in trying to appoint a committed gun control activist uh, as the head of this agency. And I think taken, you know, all together, these proposed rules that we're seeing from the ATF, the nomination of David Chipman, again, the uh, the new sanctions that were imposed that I believe will have more of an impact on American gun owners eventually than uh, the Russian uh, ammunition industry. It it, it, it it To me, there's no other conclusion, Larry, but that the administration uh, is willing to and eager uh, to attack the right to keep and bear arms any way that it can. Uh, and if it can't get it done legislatively, then it's going to rely on these executive branch actions. They're going to rely on their uh, allies in the anti-gun movement. We've seen, you know, a number of lawsuits filed uh, against the firearms industry, uh, you know, including, by the way, the argument that AR-15s are, quote unquote, readily convertible into machine guns, right? Machine guns. We've seen that in the Nevada case arising out of Las Vegas shooting. We see that argument being made in the case against Smith & Wesson uh, in uh, San Diego, arising out of the Poway shooting case. They, I mean, the Brady Center admits the gun wasn't altered in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't modified illegally by the shooter in that case, but somehow conceptually it could be modified. Um, you know, to accept that argument is to say that ATF has no longer allowed "Quote unquote machine guns to be sold by the industry for decades. I mean, right. it's absurd on its face, right? But, but the lawsuits we see the Mexican lawsuit, we see we we fully anticipate and expect to see lawsuits from Democrat anti-gun state AGs. They are laying the ground work for that. That's what's behind the Smith and Wesson subpoena by the New Jersey AG. The day after Mexican government sued members of our industry." White House met with these Democrat AGs uh, to plan an attack on the industry to circumvent the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. We see that with this uh, new act signed by Governor Cuomo. By the way, today's his last day. Good riddance. Don't let the mansion door hit you in the ass on the way out, Governor. Um, you know, where they're trying to work their way around the PLCA to inundate the industry with lawsuits. Um, and they are working 
The gun control groups are coordinating together. They are working with the Democrat AGs, um, and they are also coordinating with what's called the FACTS, the Firearms uh, you know, Accountability Coalition of big white shoe law firms um, like Proskauer Ross that's helping to represent the plaintiffs in Soto. And they are basically trying to weaponize the Soto decision and make everything somehow about marketing and advertising uh, you know, I feel like uh, this is going to be a reference. To many of the audience may not get this, but I feel like I've gone into Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine in 1997 again. And, and all of these same theories about negligent marketing, oversupplying the market, they've all come full circle. Everything that was, you know, the Hamilton case was negligent marketing and oversupply. That became public nuisance in the municipal lawsuits. Now we're seeing that, you know, these claims of, you know, unfair deceptive trade practices act. It's all the same. You know, yeah. any theory they can conceive of, which is what was so bad about the Soto decision, why it was so wrongly decided by one vote, by the way, four three, and they are trying to exploit that. They know that they can't pass a repeal of the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And the Mexican government, for example, they they have no standing to bring that lawsuit, I believe. And even if they do, it's barred by the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And now they're trying to concoct this theory that, you know, they can come into a U.S. courtroom, file a lawsuit asserting, you know, American legal claims like public nuisance and negligence, but then try to say, well, it doesn't apply to us because we're the government of Mexico. That is rubbish. You decided to sue us in an American courtroom. You live with the American law. And there's nothing in the PLCAA that says, you know, for lawsuits alleging the claim occurred in New York or, or in, in the United States. It doesn't matter. It doesn't allow these claims to be filed in federal court or state court anywhere in the United States. If the harm you're claiming about arose from the criminal misuse of the product, you can't sue the manufacturer, right? You can't. Yep. So even in that case, they try to claim, well, basically the Soto theory. Oh, it's about marketing and distribution. Your, your advertising is what caused drug cartels to smuggle guns into Mexico. I mean, it's just ludicrous on its face. It is. But as you say, they've, they've got the money, they've got the resources, uh, and uh, they're going to try to continue this strategy and, until, uh, you know, the courts put a stop to it, unfortunately. Um, I hope that's the case. One just last one point on the Mexico lawsuit, because the irony just shouldn't be lost in anybody. They filed the lawsuit the same day the industry was holding its import-export compliance conference with the State Department, the Commerce Department, Custom and, and Border, Homeland Security, and ATF to make sure that people were legally exporting product uh, and legally importing the product. So the irony cannot be lost. That's the day they chose to bring their lawsuit. I suspect they probably weren't aware uh, because it came on the anniversary of the um, you know, the, the, I guess the, the El Paso shooting, um, but, you know, which occurred in the United States, not in Mexico. Yeah. You know, so, um, so we'll see what Congress has to say about that, particularly in the next Congress. Absolutely. Well, listen, Larry, I, again, I appreciate hearing what you have to say. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. I hope we get a chance to do this again very soon. Always good to spend time with you, Cam. Have a good day. You too, sir.
Appreciate Larry joining us on the program. We, of course, will give you any updates on the uh, proposed rule. I suppose we'll give you any updates on the uh, sanctions, too, but I expect we're going to hear more about the uh, proposed rule change from the ATF, and uh, we will certainly bring you any new details as they become available. Right now, though, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report as well. I will start with a story from the uh, fantastic website, CWB Chicago. Uh, which really does a great job of covering crime and the courts uh, in Chicago in the Cook County area. Take a look at this headline. Man faces felony gun charge less than 48 hours after having gun case dropped in, quote, restorative justice court. Yeah, seems like maybe uh, justice wasn't really done here in this case, right? Uh, 21-year-old Armando Rodriguez. Prosecutors on Friday wiped his slate clean by dropping four felony gun charges that he was facing in a restorative justice court. And less than 36 hours later, according to CWB Chicago, police allegedly found an intoxicated Rodriguez sitting in a car with a gun on his lap at a Northside gas station. And prosecutors on Sunday charged him with a fresh felony gun charge. CWB Chicago says when Cook County Chief Judge Timothy Evans announced the Avondale Restorative Justice community court last summer. He said the court would resolve conflicts through, uh, through quote, restorative conferences and peace circles instead of typical criminal court procedures. He said, quote, we've recognized for a long time that young people need a second chance. Okay, cool. Not sure why we need to have uh, peace circles to do that, but uh, all right, whatever. Uh, Rodriguez was one of the court's first participants. Yeah. And he may have blown that second chance, according to uh, CWB Chicago. Back in uh, November 2020, police responded to calls of shots fired. They spotted a vehicle matching the description, saw it crash into another car. Rodriguez then climbed out of the car, ran a short distance, returned back to the car, grabbed a gun from the passenger side of the car, and then ran away again. Cops ran after him. They took him into custody. He was carrying a glass jar with about an ounce of pot. Officers found a loaded handgun along the uh, pursuit path as well. The SUV that he ran from was stolen, uh, but police say they aren't sure if he was the passenger or the driver. He was charged with unlawful, uh, aggravated unlawful use of a weapon, criminal trespass to a vehicle, possession of cannabis, and Judge John Light sent him home on electronic monitoring on $2,000 bail. Grand jury came back uh, a week later, a few weeks later, and uh, charged him with four felony counts of unlawful use of a weapon. Another judge then took him off of electronic monitoring entirely when his case was transferred to the Restorative Justice Court in March of this year. And on Friday, after Rodriguez agreed to a, quote, repair of harm agreement, Prosecutors dropped all charges before the court's circle keeper, Judge Beatrix Santiago. And as CWB uh, Chicago reports, everything went great for about a day and a half. Early Sunday, police responded to a gas station on the uh, 300 block of West Chicago after an employee called 911 about a man in a car refused to leave the lot. When cops showed up, they found Rodriguez asleep in the car, loaded pistol on his lap. Judge Mary Marubio said after being told about Rodriguez's restorative justice experience, said, I'm sorry, he just got a case dismissed on the 20th? Prosecutor said, yep, at the RJCC, using the initials of the Restorative Justice Community Court. And uh, Judge Marabuo has now said bail at $4,000. Yeah, so he's got to post $400 to get out of jail. When he does, he's supposed to observe a 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. curfew. Great. Uh, CWB Chicago, by the way, points out that uh, Beatrix Santiago, the circle keeper there at the restorative justice court, uh, knows a thing or two about forgiveness. They say four years ago, the state's court commission, which hears allegations of judicial misconduct, found that she knowingly deceived a mortgage lender. But hey, 
I'm sure she promised to, you know, sign some sort of agreement of restoration to, you know, make it better, a repair of harm agreement. That's right. And then they got together in a circle, I'm sure, you know, banged on the bongos and uh, saying kubaya and everything was great. If you don't care about the increase in violent crime in Chicago, that is. Today's armed citizen story from South Carolina, where an armed citizen able to uh, stop a would-be intruder in the Spartanburg area. This is from uh, WIS TV. It happened uh, about 9.30 p.m. Saturday night. According to police, residents say the man kicked in the back door of a home. Uh, he was armed, apparently. He was, according to authorities, or according to uh, uh, the uh, residents, anyway, he was armed with a handgun. There was a confrontation. One of the uh, homeowners shot the would-be intruder. Coroner's office identified him as 29-year-old Damian Quintel Henderson. Officials say the residents were not injured. The investigation is ongoing. But uh, right now, this appears to be a clear-cut case of self-defense. And finally today, our good deed of the day from Humboldt County, California. The uh, website, uh, what is this, Redheaded Black Belt, uh, which uh, covers news in the Emerald Triangle, uh, giving, they say, a round of applause to Matt Taylor, who is a garbage truck driver whose early morning heroics in Eureka, California, saved a sleeping family from a burning home back on August the 10th. He noticed smoke pouring out of a home along his route, and after confirming that people may be inside, he immediately sprung into action. He woke up the sleeping family inside in order to evacuate them safely. Four people and their pets made it out okay. He uh, told Humboldt last week, quote, I knew I needed to get them out of there right away. He also said he did not hear any smoke alarms. Um, but he said that uh, much of the event was a blur until he was able to collect his thoughts. He said, I parked the truck for maybe 15 minutes afterwards to chill out a bit. He says I was uh, wound up right afterwards. And then he completed his route. Damages estimated about $150,000. I mean, this was a pretty significant blaze, but uh, thanks to Matt Taylor in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Again, everybody was able to escape safely. So, uh, Mr. Matt Taylor, we thank you, sir, for your very, very good deed. Now, that is about all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Want to thank you, as always, for being a part of the program, for uh, checking out BearingArms.com throughout the day, perhaps even for being a VIP subscriber to BearingArms.com. If you would like to uh, join the ranks of the VIP subscribers, easy enough. All you have to do, go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNS, and you can get 25% off of your VIP membership. Now, we're going to give you, in exchange... News stories, analysis, content you're just not going to get anywhere else uh, as a way of showing our thanks. And we really do thank you. Your support allows us to do programs like this each and every day, bringing you the latest Second Amendment news and information with folks in the know, like Larry Keene of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Of course, for even more Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation, just check out BarryAndArms.com. We'll be back tomorrow with more Second Amendment news that you need to know about. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.